The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. Our special guest today is Jamie Catherwood, and we're going to get into a deep dive on history parallels to today. So, Jamie, I got to tell you, I'm a little jealous of your handle because <laughs> because I think, uh, unfortunately, I don't know if it's short termism. I don't know if it's recency bias, but amnesia, I think, is in the ultimate bull market, right, in the way that I think people look at markets. So before we get into the way you look at history Talk about yourself, your background, how'd you get to sort of this place where you're known as this kind of historian when it comes to financial markets? Yeah, so first off, thank you uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. And so, yeah, anyone that's kind of not familiar with investor amnesia, my name is Jamie Catherwood. I was a history major in college. I've kind of been a longtime history nerd ever since I was a kid. And my decision to kind of do history as in my undergrad was based on the fact that I still knew I wanted to go into business or finance eventually, but I assumed at that time I was going to go get an MBA because that would be required. And so I kind of figured I'll do history as an undergrad instead of business because I thought eventually I'd do business at MBA level. But so I did my passion, which was history undergrad. And then when I graduated, I got a job at an investment consultant in D.C., and I had a buddy recommend that I kind of get into finance Twitter for trying to network instead of LinkedIn. And I started doing that. And then I realized that there were a lot of people putting out really interesting podcasts, blogs, et cetera, finance. And as a history major, basically all I did for my entire bachelor's degree was read and write essays about history. So I figured maybe I'll start writing a few kind of blog posts about financial history to merge my two interests and see if that's interesting to anybody. But more than anything, just kind of for myself, because I find it fascinating to read about and still do. And to my surprise, there were a lot of people interested in the history of finance. And so from kind of medium articles originally to launching a website and newsletter and online financial history courses, it's kind of just continued to grow. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. I never grow tired of reading about this stuff. And I think even though there are obviously many differences between how markets operate today and how they did in say 17th century Amsterdam, the people investing and participating in the markets have changed very little. So hence investor amnesia, because we still act 
in many of the same ways as the people trading on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange in like 1680. All right. So here's a bit of a a strange question, but I think it's important because, you know, I'm a big fan of Nassim Taleb and Black Swan thinking. And I think you would argue that in the absence of markets that have followed normal distribution, you can't really rely on history because uh, the sample size may not actually be large enough. How do you think about history from that context? Meaning you often hear people talk about how this cycle is like the 70s or like other periods in history, but I always go back to that's only been an example or an N of one. So so talk through that dynamic as far as sort of the longevity of history and how applicable it is. Yeah, so I think that there's definitely – the way I like to think of it is – analogy I use is kind of comparing like a compass versus a GPS system. So to your point, I don't think that history is like a GPS system where if you read about the 70s and the inflation and oil prices then, then you're kind of like set to navigate markets perfectly today. You know, it's not like, oh, I read about all this. And so in terms of moving forward in the markets, like I know exactly where the market's going to go, like some sort of crystal ball. There's no kind of clearly laid out directions. and What history can do, though, is if you have kind of a larger sample size and more events over hundreds of years, you can kind of at least orient yourself in the right direction and kind of use history as a compass. So at least you are not doing kind of the opposite of what you should be when this like these historical patterns and trends um, present themselves in modern times. And so to your point, I don't think that it's like, oh, look at this chart from the 70s when something similar happened. And so now we just kind of can expect markets to move that exact direction today. So I definitely agree with you there. Okay, so now arguably something that has a very long history going back to cavemen is is battles and wars and conflicts. Okay, so yeah. at least let's, let's kind of go in that direction, which is the, the name of the space, the history of economic warfare. So you sent me a, a very well-written piece kind of outlining your thoughts on what's going on with Russia, Ukraine, how it compares to history. So I want you to play the role of professor here and talk through the audience about prior periods of war, economic sanctions, any similarities to today. Just, just kind of riff based on that piece that you sent me. Yeah, so you can really kind of think about, I mean, as long as there have been wars, you go back to like ancient times and really just the kind of act of like pillaging and plundering, insulting the earth as armies used to do when they kind of ransacked towns, they would put salt on the the earth so that the crops couldn't grow. Like all of that is kind of a form, you could argue, of sanctions because you're trying to limit your enemy's ability to, in that case, like grow crops, but really sustain their economy. And so, but as you mentioned, kind of a little more recently, at least by my definition, I wrote this article that's not yet published, but it kind of walks through a couple of examples of just economic warfare and the weaponization of money. And so one of the most interesting examples that I found was during the American Revolution, one of the British, one of Britain's strategies was to undermine the American colonists paper currency, the Continentals, which obviously was a relatively unstable currency just because it was a very new nation and not yet totally broken away from um, Britain. And so it already was not very stable. And so what the British did was they started a kind of wide-scale counterfeiting campaign designed to basically just flood the U.S. economy with paper currency counterfeit bills in order to just reduce the value of the paper currency because they were hoping to drive inflation with just an oversupply of bills. 
And what was ironic about that was that the counterfeit bills that the British made were actually higher quality because they had better kind of printing presses and uh, engraving machines than the colonists did. And so there was actually better quality bills than the originals. But it was a real problem. And there were quotes from, I think, John Adams in a letter to his wife in like 1778 said something along the line, Britain's strategy is not to rely upon the force of its own guns, but upon the failure of our revenue. And to that end, they've tried to depreciate our currency through counterfeiting. And I think he actually got mad at his wife in a different letter about her spending counterfeit bills without realizing it. And he was basically telling her, only use bills that you get from these two locations because those are the ones that we know are actually made here in the U.S. and not counterfeit. And there are other examples of ultimately putting bounties out on counterfeiters because the problem was so widespread and it was successfully reducing the value of um, the Continental's paper currency. And so the British had their desired effect. And there's some CPI or early CPI equivalent data from that period that showed like, I think during the war, the CPI was above 10% for basically the entire war. And it got up to like 14%, I think in 1780. And one of the interesting things to come out of that, though, during this kind of weaponization of money through counterfeiting campaigns was the creation of the first kind of inflation index bonds. So in 1780, I think the kind of price, the exchange rate from $1 of specie gold to the paper continental currency was like 225 paper continentals would get you $1 of specie. So it was just insane. And at that point, the monthly wage for an American soldier was $5 a month in the Continentals currency. And so it was just worthless, essentially. And so because army morale was extremely low due to this issue, the state or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts issued these inflation indexed bonds as kind of a deferred method of compensation. And they tied the payment values um, that these bonds would spit out to a basket of consumer products and goods in order to kind of insulate the value of the bond payments from inflation. So Robert Schiller wrote about this in one of his books, but just fascinating to think that, you know, we have tips today, but the first kind of inflation index bonds were created largely in response to counteracting the, the British counterfeiting campaign during the Revolutionary War. So that's one of the early examples. And after that, ironically, actually, the American troops did a similar strategy during World War II after Japan captured a series of islands in the Pacific. The Japanese started issuing these occupation currency, I think they called it, where they basically took away whatever the local island's existing currency was and replaced it with this like Japanese occupation money. And the Americans and the Australian government kind of worked together to start counterfeit these weird occupation currencies as well and successfully kind of destroyed the Japanese system that they were operating in in these occupied islands. So it's kind of a learned from being on the receiving end um, of the British counterfeiting campaign and deployed it themselves in a future war. And then going on to another very interesting uh, 
episode, which a lot of people might be familiar with, especially in the crypto community, are these rye stones. So if anyone has seen any articles or images of these gargantuan limestone discs that were used as a form of currency on the island of Yap, I don't know if they're still in use, but up until like the early 20th century, I know they were because I've read about it. But they're essentially these massive, like I think they got up to eight 1,800 pounds and 12 feet tall limestone discs with a circle hollowed out in the middle of them. And the islanders on Yap, where this currency was, they would basically canoe over to another island that had a bunch of limestone, mine this currency, bring it back. And then the chief in front of the whole village would kind of assign a value to these various limestone discs based on their size and weight and you would do this in front of the whole village so that if someone purchased one of these rye stones there was kind of this proof of transaction and everybody else in the community could see okay this person bought it they own it now and we all see it and kind of verify that transaction what's interesting is that then in the early 20th century late 19th century germany kind of came into controlling this island of Yap and they became basically became one of their colonies. And the new German officials, once they arrived on Yap, they were not happy with the condition of the roads and paths on the island. And so they wanted it to they wanted them to be improved and they wanted to use the local Yap natives as the kind of workers to complete these construction projects, but the locals were not having any of it. They fiercely resisted this kind of these orders from the Germans. And so the Germans couldn't really find these locals because what's the value of finding them if their form of payment was limestone discs weighing up to 9,000 pounds? It's not really of much value to the Germans. And so what they did in order to kind of coerce the locals into doing what the Germans wanted is that they confiscated these limestone disc currency by just placing an X on them and saying, okay, all the stones marked with an X have been confiscated by the the German uh, government, which sounds ridiculous. But 200 years later, it's not that dissimilar to what's happened with the Russian sanctions and restricting access to the foreign currency reserves that the Russians had built up over the years after the U.S. and some allies said, you can't touch these foreign currency reserves now. And the link, I kind of got the idea from Matt Levine from Bloomberg wrote about how when the foreign currency reserve access was shut off, he wrote that basically you know, foreign currency reserves are not an objective fact. They're really just a series of entries on lists maintained by foreign currency issuers. And if people decide to, they can just really cross you off the list or put an asterisk next to your name and freeze your funds, which is exactly what happened with these rye stones. It was just in the form of the Germans kind of painting an X on them. But this idea of figuring out ways to kind of restrict or entirely cut off an enemy's access to important financial assets is nothing new. I mean, it's been going on for more than a century. So I found that fascinating. And moving on to World War One, another really interesting kind of parallel to what's going on today, specifically with the increasingly important role that China is playing with the Russia-Ukraine situation and kind of stepping in to fill the void that the U.S. has created by sanctioning Russia is in the lead up to World War One and in the kind of just 
late 19th, early 20th centuries more generally, the loans that European powers were granting to each other were interesting because they were not purely financial transactions. And so in this article I, I wrote, I looked at the case of Bulgaria. Adam Tews wrote a great article on this where he discusses that during this period, Bulgaria achieved its independence from the Ottoman Empire in 1878. And then as a new country, they obviously were very reliant on external kind of funding to get themselves up and running and kind of sustain themselves as a new country now that they were out from under the Ottoman Empire. And as soon as they became independent, all these kind of warring alliances in Europe kind of saw Bulgaria as a battleground for spreading their own influence and kind of getting another country to be within their kind of military block or alliance. And so what you would often have is these major nations like Germany and Austria, Hungary, Britain, France, etc. They would offer loans to a smaller, less economically stable country like Bulgaria, but with strings attached and use this kind of loan as a way to gain another country as a client almost to kind of bring them in to their to their empire. Adam II has called it kind of an empire by invitation. So specifically what happened with Bulgaria is in 1902, Paradise Bank in Paris, as part of the Franco-Russian alliance, offered a loan, but the loan stipulated that they would have access to the tax revenue from the tobacco tax in Bulgaria, which is really important. And so it was kind of a really intrusive clause to include, and it had widespread backlash in Bulgaria. Well, Bulgaria also needed the money. And so the, the Bulgarians accepted the loan. And then a couple of years later, once that was paid off, in 1914, the Germans wanting to bring Bulgaria under their alliance offered a loan and it had similar similar kind of intrusive clauses that gave them the rights to important areas of Bulgarian state revenue. And there was such widespread backlash in Bulgaria to this that there was a debate in parliament over whether the loan should be accepted because it was kind of sacrificing Bulgarian sovereignty and their rights to make decisions because so much of the control was going to be ceded to Germany. That during the debate in parliament, the prime minister was like beaten on the head by another member of parliament um, who was so outraged. And then there was so much chaos and violence in this specific debate that there was actually a lack of records of how the vote turned out of over whether to accept or reject the loan. But the people arguing in favor of the loan kind of just cooked the books in terms of votes to show that the the majority had voted in favor of it, but it's very questionable whether that actually happened because there was just basically a full-on brawl within the parliament. And what's unfortunate for the Bulgarians is, as I said earlier, with these loans, there was a huge kind of geopolitical element to them because if you took a loan from a French or a Russian bank, you were effectively being forced to align yourselves with their economic and military kind of alliance. So if you accepted a loan from Russia or France and Russia or France went to war, you basically had to pledge yourself on their side of the war, regardless of whether it benefited you or not. And so what that meant was you kind of had to consider not only the financial aspects of a loan, you know, what the interest rate a bank is offering you is, et cetera, 
but also whether you believe that this country will be victorious should they go to war. And so, as probably many of you can see coming ahead, if this loan was from Germany in 1914 and the Bulgarians accepted it, this meant that they were aligned with the Axis powers going into World War I, which the Germans obviously lost, and that was very detrimental to the Bulgarian economy. But this kind of using loans and debt as a way to wield kind of geopolitical influence is definitely nothing new. And obviously, we've seen a lot of that recently with the Russia-Ukraine crisis and how countries can force enemy nations into a bind economically by kind of restricting their ability to float new bonds or drive up their interest rates by cutting off access to other kind of financial assets, et cetera. It's something that's been going on for a long time. And I think personally that as the prevalence of kind of hot wars declines, that this kind of economic warfare stands to only increase in terms of importance because it's just, you can see just the fact that I think that we're discussing whether you agree with troops, American troops not going in to Ukraine or not, the fact that there's even a debate over whether economic sanctions could be enough, I feel like shows the, the power of economic sanctions just in the fact that it's even a debate and it shows how effective they can be. But that's, that's my lecture concluded. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's a lot of great context. <laughs> I mean, I'd say it's concerning. That's not honestly like an area I spend too much looking into. But going to your point about whether we had debt during the Revolutionary War, that period is actually fascinating because basically after the war ended, America was broke. And when Hamilton came in, he kind of had to devise a plan on the fly for how to get out from under this debt and pay all these loans that the U.S. owed. And it was not long after in, in 1792 that the U.S. had its first financial panic. And it was largely related to kind of a mania surrounding the Bank of the United States stock, which was in charge of kind of carrying out Hamilton's plans for restructuring the American debt and public finances. And that was all, all because it was broke after the expensive war. I encourage everybody to follow Jamie and, of course, check out his, his course, which has quite a bit of interesting data on, on prior financial stress periods. I want to go back, Jamie, to what you said about, you know, in the beginning, warfare was really about crops, right? Because crops arguably were really the first currency because people had to eat, right? I wonder if you think there are some parallels to what's going on today, crops as a sort of weapon in the sense that as we've seen, wheat prices have gone up. Russia's got tremendous, uh, tremendous stranglehold on fertile. How do you think about sort of how things might have gone full circle here, where we're again thinking about crops as sort of a, a weapon from a from a war perspective? I'll be honest, that is definitely not an area I can speak to intelligently. But if you have thoughts, I'd be very interested to hear them. Yeah, no, it, it's just something that's that's intriguing to me, right? Because it's it's I mean, clearly it's a disruption. Okay, so so what other areas from a from a history perspective do you think are are interesting to study as a way of understanding where we are now in the cycle. What else have you have you looked at that kind of gives you some kind of compass for where we are today? So I think that I've written and spoke pretty frequently before about this concept of the three eyes and the relationship between kind of speculation and innovation, which I think we've definitely seen a lot of in the last like two or three years. 
where there's this idea of the three eyes that Warren Buffett referenced in a 2008 interview with Charlie Rose, where Buffett responded saying that basically in every kind of mania, there are three phases where first you have the innovator that kind of creates a whole new sector or technology or something new and exciting, and it works. And a lot of money is made by the people who are invested in that innovator's new product or company, et cetera. And then there are a wave of imitators that kind of crop up because they want to kind of replicate that success. And so I would say like the the lift to an Uber, et cetera. And then eventually you have the idiots, which are not the investors, but the kind of a little more sleazy, I guess you could say, people that are founding companies with sketchy business models and questionable business practices that are really kind of just forming in order to take advantage of the hype cycle around whatever the new technology or exciting um, investment opportunity is. And usually one of those idiot companies kind of takes things too far and brings down the kind of whole bubble or system and causes a market crash. And so I think in the last couple of years, definitely during COVID and the kind of first day trading, everybody stuck at home, Robin Hood, like manias started. You saw a lot of that specifically in the electric vehicle space. So, I mean, I think in the first couple months of 2020, um, I'm trying to remember the years because time is meaningless now <laughs> because of COVID. I think it was 2020 that Tesla's shares were up like a couple hundred percent just within the first few months of 2020 and obviously after um, the March crash. But then when this kind of wave of new traders came online through Robinhood, when people were stuck at home with not much to do, they were going into Tesla. And then the kind of second round of people that came into the market had missed all those massive returns in Tesla. And so what they started to do was kind of look for the next Tesla. And so that would be the, in, the imitator wave of the kind of phase. And so it ironically ended up being uh, Nikola, ironic because shares the name with Tesla, but Nikola was touted as the next Tesla. You know, So people just poured money into the SPAC and the stock once it um, went public in early May or early June. And within the first month, you know, the shares of this company that did not actually have a product and had no revenues in its first quarterly report outside of the $36,000 the company made from installing like solar panel rule, solar panel roofs on uh, Trevor Milton's ranch. And the shares were up like 100% regardless. And it was just kind of the first of many of these EV specs to kind of have ridiculous returns relative to the amount of kind of sales or even products that they were offering. And funnily enough, obviously, we all know how the Nikola kind of scandal went down. And so Nikola ended up being simultaneously the imitator and then the idiot because Trevor Milton's kind of antics and promises about company growth proved to be a little too excessive for the SEC's liking. But I think in this age, as there's more and more kind of technological innovation and new kind of technologies just cropping up in various sectors, that there is a much... Uh, more prevalent kind of cycle of these three eyes where you see a lot of speculation following innovation. And so I think that that's been an interesting kind of parallel to look at throughout history because it's one that has appeared many times in many different bubbles and then everything from kind of diving engine technology companies in the 1690s 
to bicycle manias in the 1890s and so on. And so I think we've seen a lot of that in the last few years. And because we're just in this age of technological innovation, I expect that to be one that continues for a while. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. It's funny you say that because my, my mind immediately went to cryptocurrencies before you brought up the the EV side of it, which we can get into. Yeah, I think there's one thing that we've seen historically is that policymakers are very creative at preventing creative destruction. So I'm sure there's uh, there's some other tactic. But but that does kind of bring up you know a little bit of, of the 2008 period. And you, know, you always have people that uh, talk about 2008 as a parallel because they think something really bad is going to come, right? That's always sort of the, the example. I'd even argue that's probably more memorable for people in terms of market history than a COVID, right? Because COVID was just two months, and then you know, that was a more prolonged type of decline. Talk through a little bit when you think about the history of the great financial crisis, if you see any parallels, any dynamics which are Similar, what's different? How would you counter somebody that's always worried about another 2008 type of financial crisis? So I think kind of more generally that it is interesting to your point about how these certain periods just kind of capture investors' minds and always they just become like the permanent basis to compare everything to. So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like when people get into that mindset of something related to 2008, it's kind of hard to prove otherwise. And so take this question a little differently, if that's all right. Because I think, so that for us today is always the benchmark. It's how does this relate to 2008, whether it's kind of an apt comparison or not. During COVID, another kind of funny thing is that we have switched just from the mainstream media point of view. The narratives have so quickly switched between this is like 2008. And then like a month later, it's like, this is like 1999. And it's just always related to whether markets are up a lot or down. And it just kind of people just flip flop between which of the two recent kind of crises and bubbles have been. And there's definitely a similar phenomenon with the period of Weimar hyperinflation, where definitely, I'd say gold bugs specifically, kind of every time there's inflation, which we obviously are living through today for decade highs. But every time there's inflation, people go immediately to Weimar hyperinflation, like there's a direct parallel. And then even going further back, one of my favorite topics is debunking the tulip mania bubble, because it is one of those stories that is not really based in fact that has just persisted over centuries now. and continues to be kind of the basis for comparison every time there's a speculative bubble in an asset or investment that people think is stupid, but the actual tulip mania crisis itself was not really a crisis. Yeah, I, I will say, I, I think the I think the Beanie Baby is kind of more apropos with things that you can argue for today that might be might be bubbles as a uh, documentary I saw on HBO uh, a few weeks ago that was actually really interesting talking about how uh, the secondary market was so 
unbelievably scarce that these prices on Beanie Babies went absolutely vertical. People talk about tulips first instead of Beanie Babies, but they don't remember tulips because <laughs> they, they never actually lived that long. Are you talking about the HBO documentary? Yeah, on the, on the Beanie, because I was just saying this, this idea that, yeah, everyone references. Yeah, so no, that's definitely um, part of it. So basically what happened is, really what happened at the time was tulips definitely were being traded and they were popular, but kind of in a niche community in Holland. And they were just kind of these exotic flowers that were being brought in and people traded them, but it was kind of within the kind of horticultural community. And what happened though, is as these tulips started being traded more and people kind of started really liking tulips more broadly in Dutch society, the people trading tulips and the merchants kind of buying and selling them and bringing them to Holland started making good money. And what happened was these merchants and kind of tulip traders, but more like tulip people in the tulip trade rather than when I say trader, like, you know, day traders or something, they started making money and kind of elevating their status within society. And so these kind of middle-class merchants were suddenly entering the kind of upper, more elite class of society. And the elite class in Holland at the time did not like that because it was kind of the age old, like new money versus old money. So the old money elite class started putting out these pamphlets that were really just propaganda with all these stories that we still repeat today about how people were day trading tulips at the taverns and getting drunk while their families, you know, starved at home. And it was kind of just painting the whole trade and people buying and selling tulips as like degenerates. And they had stories about, you know, people committing suicide because they had lost all their money in the tulip trade and that people were buying and selling tulips for the prices of houses or one tulip being traded like 300 times. And all of these stories come from these pamphlets that were circulated by the elite because they're kind of trying to turn the public sentiment against the tulip trade because they just didn't like the fact that their kind of status was being encroached upon by these new money kind of middle class merchants that were suddenly raising their economic status. And so what happened was, is that this 18th century German author wrote a book about the tulip mania, and he cited all of these pamphlets as fact. So the comparison I make to today is that if, say, you know, 200 years from now, someone was looking through like the liquidity or ramp capital memes on Twitter and took all of those jokes as a fact and said, you know, this is exactly what happened when they're really just totally made up or jokes, et cetera. And so this German author in his book, which was poorly cited because it used all these propaganda pamphlets as fact instead of just exaggerated made up stories, that German book was then used as the source work for Charles McKay's um, Popular Delusions or whatever, The Madness of Crowds. I always forget the title exactly. But the Charles McKay book, which talks about tulip mania, which is where most people today get their kind of information on the tulip episode from, used this German author's poor source work. And so it's kind of just like been a bad game of telephone throughout centuries of history. And so today, when you hear people talk about the tulip mania, it's always these same stories that were in the pamphlets from the 17th century, because this German author took those as fact. And then Charles McKay used the German author's book as fact. And so we still are just kind of repeating these made up stories by 
the rich people in Dutch society who did not want the tulip trade to kind of continue to thrive. So people were definitely trading tulips and they got high prices. But these kind of stories of trading for the prices of houses are untrue. And one tulip being traded like 500 times are not true. Anne Goldgar from King's College London, just actually my alma mater, she wrote a book called Tulip Mania, which is amazing. And she kind of goes through everything that I've outlined in way more detail and kind of debunks this whole idea. And she did extensive research for years in the Dutch archives. And she wrote that the longest kind of chain of transactions for one bulb that she could find was five. So let alone 300 or 100, the five, five transactions for one bulb was the longest chain she found. But again, the story that everyone repeats today because of this long line of bad historical source work is that one bulb traded hundreds of times and all these crazy stories. Yeah. Great question. And I think in the short term, they can definitely move markets. I think in the long term, fundamentals and kind of actual results is what matters and dictates the price of stocks. But in the short term, I think narrative can definitely sway markets. And I think that the last two or three years have been the best example of that because... Why is that though? I mean, I often wonder if that's just because with social media narrative is much easier to get a retweet or to get a like from than the hard data. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I think in the last two or three years specifically, it's probably a lot of it just because of COVID where a lot of people are at home more and just kind of consuming more media. And so I think that it's just, there's more eyeballs. And so you can move things easier. I think definitely social media is a huge part of that. But I think, you know, why these last two or three years with social media instead of the two years pre-COVID, I think it's just because more people are kind of glued to media because there's just less stuff to do because more people are kind of on their phones and at home. I think if you're one, if you're debating enrolling in the course or not, I think you definitely should because one of the uh, lectures by Niall Ferguson, who's obviously the godfather of financial history and economic history, he spends a good portion of his lecture arguing against Dalio's thesis on the rise and fall of empires. And his point is kind of that instead of while we all while we like to think that there's this kind of typical rise and fall pattern of empires, the reality is, is that they kind of, instead of having a steady climb and then slow descent and eventually just kind of full collapse of an empire, they tend to be much more dramatic and sudden than we like to think. And so he kind of goes through Dalio's argument and kind of debunks it. I'm not going to try and paraphrase now Ferguson's argument because I'd be doing him a disservice. But to your point about the kind of system breeding instability, I think one of the more interesting kind of thesis from economic and financial history is from Hyman Minsky, 
he talks about the kind of Minsky effect and how I think the line is literally that economic stability breeds instability because just from a kind of behavioral standpoint, when things are good and things are safe and seem stable, the longer that that goes on, the more comfortable people become with taking on risk because things have just felt so stable that you don't really feel the risk of taking on, you know, more leverage and expanding into riskier areas of the market or making riskier investments just because you feel stable and good. But then obviously, eventually, as more people have this mindset and start doing riskier things and taking on more leverage and debt, et cetera, then inevitably the stability turns to instability. And so I would say that that's an interesting kind of area of historical research um, to look into because Minsky's work is very, very fascinating. Let me add one, let me add one thought to that because it's, it's interesting, right? Because on that point, Keith, going back even to the TULIP discussion, even if you were to objectively look at history, there's that old saying that history is written by the winners, right? You don't know what's real even from a history book perspective. So that's interesting kind of direction to go with, Jamie. So I would say that, again, going back to the TULIP episode, I think that reading the just like with anything kind of related to research or finance, the best way to kind of understand what really happened is to go to the source material. With history specifically, I guess you kind of have to have an interest in it because to me, reading kind of archival posts of stuff written in you know 18th, 17th century is interesting to me, but maybe not to other people. But just like with finance, you know, reading someone's analysis of something versus looking at the actual kind of financial statements is a big difference. And so just looking at the actual source material helps you kind of get a better understanding of what really happened and give you a more objective view rather than just reading someone else's opinion. Having said that, subscribe to Investor Amnesia. But so I think that reading through original documents and the actual source material will just give you a more kind of holistic view and tune out more of the noise because you're just getting the straight facts of what happened, at least to a certain degree, because as Michael pointed out, history is written by the winners. But you can also, if you're looking for it, find find the, the voices on the losing side. And so I guess that would be my main kind of suggestion for how to take an objective view of history. I'd say speculative, but I'd have to reread the specific definitions of how he defines them to give the best answer. But on that point, you know, it's I'm cynical about people's ability to have critical thinking. And I say that because, you know, to your point, narratives become even more of a driver of things. People are much more system one than system two. And I would argue that behavior is much more extreme because that's what gets attention, you know, on, on social media in particular than probably ever before, at least in a visible way in history. So for those that are trying to, again, go back to this idea of history as a comp, are there certain ideas from kind of a broad asset allocation perspective that to you are screaming to, to overweight or underweight based on something going on today versus history? So even going back to the economic warfare sanctions, you know, what's the, what, how different sectors of the market behave, you know, following that? How is, how is the cycle looked? You know, any kind of thoughts on that would be, I think, helpful for the audience. Yeah, I mean, I haven't looked into what kind of sectors and stuff do well during times of economic warfare. I think episodes like this, especially in the last like decade or so, when, I mean, until COVID, it was just so easy to just, you know, buy the dip and everything would be all right because we, there just hasn't been that much volatility. But I think these kinds of episodes just serve as reminders that there are there are things that can just disrupt your portfolio and kind of come out of nowhere. These kind of like 
unforeseen events. And it's a reminder to make sure that you are kind of really making sure that your risk exposures are in line with kind of worst case scenarios and that you're diversified enough so that you're not exposed in riskier countries to know, like you're not holding 80% of your portfolio in Russian stocks because then if something like this happens, that can go very poorly. And so I'm not, again, I'm not sure what the kind of specific sector returns are, but I do think that these episodes serve as a useful reminder that this is kind of the norm throughout centuries of investing is kind of bouts of conflict and risky events like the Russia-Ukraine crisis or a pandemic, et cetera. And so just making sure that you are allocating your portfolio in a way that something like a one-off event is not going to you know, tank your portfolio is is good to is a good way to prepare yourself. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And, and I think maybe at least on my end, the last question that's on my mind is how do you think about how speed has changed over over history? What I mean by that is presumably in other periods of economic warfare, sanctions were not instantaneously felt like what Russia's seeing. I mean, arguably, Russia right now probably isn't a depression. Right? Just given the way the markets have collapsed, and and which we don't even know how they look because they haven't opened yet, right? So, yeah, I, I, I'm curious if you if you think that any kind of historical analysis gets hard to rely on from that standpoint of it being a compass because everything is just accelerated now. Yeah, I mean, I still think that there. So when I think of like a compass, I'm thinking more of like broader themes rather than just kind of you know, what happens when sanctions are declared by one country. And then it's like, okay, now you have a two year or like a six month window where stuff happens. But I do think that the speed is, you know, there's no questioning that the speed is much more rapid today. I think there's a great story about a speculator named Jim Fisk, who was betting on the outcome of the civil war. He placed a huge short bet on Confederate bonds and his whole kind of edge. And the only way that he's going to be able to carry out the short was having a kind of he bribed one of the telegraph operators in Boston to submit a message to one of his guys in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, which was like the most northern telegraph station to be able to send a fast ship to Liverpool, England, where he was going to kind of carry out his short on these Confederate bonds there. But it was all predicated on his ability to just get the information that the war had ended faster than anybody else so that he could still short the bonds in London before anybody else in the British markets would have known that the war ended. And that still took, I think, like 12 days. And so obviously, if you're comparing something like that to what happens now, where as soon as something happens, basically anywhere in the world, that's major news, everybody knows about it within minutes or seconds. And so definitely the speed is, you know, vastly accelerated today. There's no question in that. Yeah, no, I, I know that sounded like an obvious question, but it's, it's just always interesting to me that people make historical comparisons, but by the time they look at history, that, that comparison may already be over, right? It's, it's, it's like I keep making this point on Twitter, which is maybe a strange concept that we're in an environment where recessions are more like crashes, and then you kind of come back because the speed of, of response by central banks so fast, you know, compared yeah. to arguably history, right? So it's just kind of an interesting um, thought experiment. So I would say like to the three eyes kind of idea we talked about earlier in history, that might have taken a couple of years, whereas, and this is just, you know, a sample size of one because we were talking about the EV case during COVID, but 
that still took a couple months. Whereas, you know, in history, it might've been a couple of years of that kind of innovator, imitator, idiot cycle. Whereas with Nikola and Tesla, et cetera, that was a matter of months, but still in that matter of months, that's more than enough time for people to kind of recognize that pattern if they're thinking about it from this kind of historical framework. Exactly right. Exactly right. Everybody that's been here for the hour or so, roughly hour, please make sure you follow Jamie, check out his course, check out his tweets. Jamie, this was a real pleasure. I mean, I think it was just interesting to get that sort of perspective of somebody that actually looks beyond the here and now and and certainly do appreciate everybody that's been here. I'll do these spaces again every day next week. And thank you again, Jamie. Really do appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.